All right, if you will, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 13. It's possible I drew the short straw for the passage this evening. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a tougher passage uh, this week and next week, so we'll see. Uh, but turn with me to Mark chapter 13. We're going to read, uh, it's going to be in two parts, so we're just going to go through verse 23 this week, and then Greg's going to correct any of my mistakes next week in verses 24 to 36, so he'll hopefully bail me out on anything I missed. Um, but let's read, I want to read all of uh, 13, 1 through 23 as we start. Mark 13, beginning verse 1, it says, As he came out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for your word. Father, I pray for your help tonight. Lord, help me to speak clearly what you would have me to say and nothing else. Lord, I pray that you would give us all ears to hear, and Lord, prepare us. May we be on guard. May we watch our lives and ourselves. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is known as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, It's the longest discourse in the the Gospel of Mark, and some of you may have 
looked ahead last week, you saw this was coming up and you thought, this is going to be fun the next couple weeks. This is, this is end times, right? Signs of the end and end times, these are always fun to kind of talk about and debate. Uh, but you may be a little disappointed tonight because we're probably going to go a different route than that. In our limited time together this evening, I don't want to spend just a ton of time on tiny details or differing interpretations. Uh, because you're going you're gonna to find them. So there are differing ways. I'm just going to go ahead and say it up front. There are differing ways to interpret uh, what's going on in this chapter. And most of the interpretations are going to be found in, has all of this already happened, or has it all yet to come, or is it somewhere in the, in the middle? Okay. So are, is this talking about things that have already happened? Is it talking about things that are all still going to come, or is there, you know, somewhere in the middle? Uh, but before we get, you know, lost in the, the trees of this passage, I kind of want us just to see the, the forest of it, because when you look at this passage and you read it, the whole chapter from start to finish, there's a theme that rises to the surface, and it's clear, and it's, it's Jesus's theme for us, Okay. Um, so begin with me looking at verse 5, and I'm actually going gonna, gonna to dip into some of what Greg's going to talk about next week, but I want you to see the whole chapter. So verse 5, how it begins. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Another way, he, he could have said, watch out, like getting your attention, watch out. Verse 9, look at verse 9. He says, but be on your guard. Verse 23, but be on your guard. Verse 33, be on guard, keep awake. Verse 35, therefore, stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. Do you think Jesus is trying to tell us something here? He said it multiple times. Watch out, be on guard, stay awake. As much as this chapter may or may not be about future events, once again, that can kind of be debated. How much of chapter 13 has already happened? How much are we have, has yet to happen? What are we looking for? Those are all real debates. And there's no way for me to teach on this without probably tipping my cap to where I land in this chapter. But I don't want that to cloud our understanding of what Jesus is emphasizing in this chapter. Okay, So it's not so much about future events as it is about present faithfulness. Okay? Jesus is very much concerned about how we're living right now. So you can debate about how it's all going to go down later, but he's saying, how are you living right now? Be on guard, stay awake. One pastor put it this way, I thought it was very helpful. He says, this is motivation to live well in the present. It's not to satisfy curiosities in the future. And this pastor goes on to say, he says, the real question's not, when is Jesus coming back? Because later on in Greg's time, Jesus is going to say himself, the angels don't know, the Son of Man doesn't know, right? So the question is not when Jesus is coming back, it's since Jesus is coming back, how then should we live? How should we be living right now? What should we be doing right now? That is what this text is about. Uh, James Edwards, he's the author of the Pillar Commentary on Mark. He said this, I thought this was really helpful. He said, the salvation brought by Jesus, he's talking about this chapter, the salvation brought by Jesus is not a salvation of knowledge, 
Okay, the salvation of Jesus is rather a way of following, of faithfulness, of standing guard at our posts, for no one knows that day or hour. And I love what he says here. It's not a way of dispensing with mystery, but of living in mystery. I think that's really good. This chapter is not going to satisfy all our desires of what's going to happen, how's it going to happen, at what point is it going to happen. None of that's going to help us. So the mystery is still going to be there. What it's going to tell you is how do you live in the midst of mystery? How do you keep trusting God? How do you keep being on guard? How do you stay awake? And that's what, what Jesus is telling us right here. So this gets to the heart of the passage. This is where I kind of want to camp out in, in framing it that way so you don't get lost when we go into some of the details of the passage. Don't get lost into what Jesus is telling us. Um, so begins in verses 1 through 2. Uh, Joel, that was the end of Joel's last, last week where Jesus is saying the temple's going to be destroyed, okay? And, and he says that in no uncertain terms. Not one stone's going to be left on another. This is going to be destroyed. And this happens in AD 70, which we'll talk about shortly. Verse 3, Jesus goes and he sits on the Mount of Olives. And did you notice it said opposite the temple? Um, he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Go back up with me to verse 41. So he's outside the temple now. He just came from being in the temple. And where was he? In verse 41, it says he sat down where? Opposite the treasury box. And what does he do when he sits down opposite the treasury box? He basically denounces the religious leaders. Now, yes, he calls attention to the widow, but in calling attention to the widow, he's really denouncing the religious leaders. And now he's sitting opposite the temple, and he's about to denounce the whole religious system right now because it's all gone astray. I mean, he's just said that. And so he sits on the, the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. One more thing that's, that's helpful here, I, I want you to turn with me to, to Zechariah. Um, so that's the second to last book in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 14, because it, it, it doesn't seem to be insignificant that Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. So, so one thing, sitting is a place of authority. So we're backwards, and in our culture a lot of times, the teacher stands, the people sit. Uh, that was a little different back then. The teacher was the one who sat. And so the teacher sat and taught, and that was the place of authority. So Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. He can see it perfectly. It's a great view. Uh, we got to spend time there when we went to Israel, and, and we're in this spot where you see the temple there. Uh, and, but, but look with me at Zechariah chapter 14. Uh, we'll say beginning verse 1, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken and the houses plundered and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand... On the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. What's the context of what Jesus is talking about at the beginning? He's actually talking about the fall of Jerusalem. And, and, and in this, uh, or, or sorry, God is talking about the fall of Jerusalem right here in, in, in uh, Zechariah 14. And he's pronouncing this in the place of the Mount of Olives. And so now Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives in this place of authority. I mean, there's really a, this is God 
who's, who's telling us this. Uh, and so here he takes Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. They come to him privately. Uh, if you go back all the way to the first chapter of Mark, these are the first disciples Jesus calls. These exact four are in Mark chapter 1. They're the first ones he calls. So they're the ones who've been with him the longest. It's kind of fitting that the ones who came to him first, he called first, are now the ones at his last major discourse. And here, look at their, their question in verse 4. They say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So, once again, context tells us, what are they talking about? Well, what, what, what did Jesus just mention in the first couple of verses? He's talking about Jerusalem's fall, right? The temple being destroyed. So, that's got to be the question they're asking. When's this going to happen? What are the signs that this is going to be destroyed. And, and once again, for them to hear that the temple is going to be no more, I don't think that hits us the same way it would have them. This would have been mind-boggling. The thought that the temple would be destroyed would have been mind-boggling for the Jews to think that what separated them from the nations and what they prided themselves in and what was supposed to be the place God met with them, obviously he's with them in the flesh right here, but most of the Jews aren't recognizing that, this is going to be destroyed. And so, obviously, they come to him privately, and they want to know, when's this going to happen? How, what, what, what's the details of how this is going to happen? And then beginning in verse 5, Jesus answers their question, but how does he do it? It's kind of interesting how he does it. He does it in the reverse order of the way they asked, right? So they ask, what's the time, and when are the signs? And he's going to say, well, here are the signs. And later, he's going to talk about the time. But even then, when he talks about the time in verse 32... It's not going to be any more enlightening than they already knew because he's basically going to say, we don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You don't know the time. The Son of Man doesn't know the time. So, um, and then what's even more interesting, I think, is the first things he talks about really aren't signs of the end at all because did you catch what he's saying? I mean, look at what he's saying. And uh, so go back to, to Mark uh, 13, and he starts saying, you know, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end's not yet. So these really aren't signs of the end. Why? There's been wars and rumors of war forever. It's interesting today whenever, as soon as there's a new conflict, what, what is typically the first thing that people think? This is the end. When Russia invaded Ukraine, it's happening. This is, this is it. I mean, even with Hamas and Israel, like, okay, this is it. And those have been going on now for quite some time. And I'm no prophet and I'm not pretending to be, but my guess would be there's going to be more wars to come. Uh, because Jesus clearly says, this actually is not a sign of the end. This is going to happen. This has been happening from the very beginning. There's been wars and rumors of wars from the beginning, and they're just going to continue on. Same with uh, earthquakes and famines and natural disasters. Once again, you see a huge natural disaster, and immediately the question is, Jesus must be coming back. Well, this has been happening for millennia at this point, you know, and, and John even says in the Gospels, it's the last, or sorry, in his letters, it's the last hour, right? He's, he talks about it being the last hour. We've been in the last hour for 2,000 years, so this has been a long time in coming. So that's the little caution of just seeing these. Jesus actually says these aren't the signs of the end because when you hear that these things happen, the end's not coming. 
These have to come. Uh, and then, uh, but let's drop down to verses 9 through 13. This is the first time in verse 9 we see, but be on your guard. And then verses 9 through 12, he says, but be on your guard. Why? For they will what? Deliver you over. Verse 11, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over. Verse 12, and brother will deliver over to death. Same Greek word right there that's used three times. In chapters 14 and 15, the same Greek word for deliver, hand over, sometimes it's used of betray. That's, that's how we would translate it. Same Greek word, though, will be used ten times in just that span of two chapters. But it's not going to be referring to the disciples. Does anyone want to take a guess at who it's going to be referring to? I heard it, but you can say it louder. Jesus. Jesus is about to be handed over. Jesus is about to be delivered over. Jesus is about to be betrayed. And here he is telling his disciples, a disciple's not above his teacher, right? Uh, the servant's not above his master. The same that's happened to me is going to happen to you. Um, and he, he very clearly says this is, this is what's going to happen. So be on your guard. Be on your guard. Uh, it reminds me earlier in the gospel, Mark 8, 34 through 38, when he said this, I mean, this, and, and, and this was what he said to the crowds. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is Jesus' introduction into following him. It's not, you know, discipleship the 201. This is discipleship 101. If you're going to follow after Christ, take up your cross, deny yourself, follow me. He said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus is, is, is talking about this is going to happen to you. It's about to happen to me. In chapters 14 to 15, he will be delivered over. He'll be betrayed by Judas. He'll be delivered over to Pilate. You'll see that word ten times speaking about Jesus. And he's saying, it will be no different for you. If you follow after me, this is, this is what it's going to be. But be on guard, okay? Uh, and why will they be delivered over? Because of Jesus, right? It says two times. Uh, verse 9 says, for my sake. And then verse 13, you'll be hated by all. Why? For my name's sake. This is for the sake of Christ. Uh, but then, verse 13, comes, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this is the encouragement Jesus has. Be on guard, endure, persevere, keep trusting in him. This is, this is his, his, it's more about present living than it is future events, Okay. Um, real quick, just uh, in the, I, I skipped over verse 10. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This may tip my cap to, to where some of the eschatology falls. Uh, but what you see in verses 9 through 13, you see fulfilled in the book of Acts. You're going to see it fulfilled. If you read the book of Acts, you will see everything that's going on in verses 9 through 13 going on there because what happens when the church starts increasing in the book of acts 
there's persecution and there's tribulation. And amazingly, the more there's persecution and the more there's tribulation, guess what happens? The more the church increases. It almost, it's counterintuitive to what we would think, but as the, as the heat gets turned on, the fire gets turned on, the church is actually growing and persecution is actually what pushes them out of Jerusalem. It's what pushes them out of Judea and Samaria. And that's what goes to the ends of the earth. So that Paul, at the end of it, guess who he's speaking before? He's speaking before governors. Paul's proclaiming the gospel before governors. This is exactly what, what's being said here. And, and the Roman world at this time, they, they, they had everything. It was, it was considered the ends of the earth. I mean, listen to what Paul can say in Colossians 1.6. He's talking about the gospel. And he says, it's come to you as indeed in the whole world. It's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. So Paul clearly thinks the gospel's gone into the whole world, that it is increasing in the whole world. Does that mean we get sluggish and we're not about reaching unreached peoples? Absolutely not. That's not, that's not what this is saying. But this is one of those places where it seems that verses 9 through 13, I mean, you see this in the book of Acts. You see this fulfilled. And you see that it's going to continue on until Christ finally returns. So a lot of times with prophecy or things like this, uh, you're going to have multiple fulfillments, okay? So you'll have fulfillments in that time, but then there'll be multiple ones along the way. It's not just a one-and-done prophecy. Uh, Brute Mose taught on this in Sunday school when he was here for the fire conference. If you remember back in Isaiah, the virgin will conceive and have a child. Um, he actually said that was fulfilled in Isaiah's day. It's also fulfilled in, ultimately in Christ. A lot of prophecies work this way. So this seems to be paradigmatic for how it's going to be until Christ returns. There's going to be suffering. But what's our call to do? To be on guard, to endure, to persevere. This is what's going to happen. This is what he tells us. Um, time is going very fast. Verses 14 through 23, very quickly. Um, this is very fast. Uh, but when you see the abom abomination of desolation standing where you ought not to be, that little phrase in parentheses is actually very helpful. Let the reader understand, okay? Are those Jesus' words? Did Jesus write these words? Jesus spoke these words. So this is Mark. This is Mark inserting that. So it's helpful to, to know that Mark's likely writing to a Jewish audience during Nero's persecution, okay? And so... So helpful for them to hear these words in context of, of what Jesus is saying. Uh, abomination of desolation, uh, th this phrase, you can look back, allusion to Daniel, the thing that would have immediately come to mind, 168 BC, Syrian general Antiochus Epiphanes, he actually erects an altar to Zeus on top of the, the burnt offer, where they would offer burnt offerings in the temple, and he sacrifices a pig on it. The ultimate desolation of the temple. And this happens in 168 BC. Uh, so this would immediately come to mind. But then also, what's Jesus been talking about? How do you start the chapter? The, the destruction of the temple. Um, Luke, if you read Luke's account that's very similar, Luke 21, Luke actually says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So Luke specifically says, when they're surrounded by the Roman armies, the desolation's coming. This is what's happening. Once again, though, 
I would suggest you read these as kind of paradigmatic that there is this immediate fulfillment that's going to be AD 70 right here, but that doesn't necessarily block out the possibility of this being paradigmatic for other tragedies, difficulties coming later on. I would recommend that you research it a little more on your own because we are quickly running out of time. Um, and I want to finish uh, where the, the most important part is, which is going to be how Something to see... Wrong. Please try again. Excuse that. Um, so how does that section end? Verse 23. Someone read it. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So second time just in this short section where Jesus is more concerned about your present faithfulness than he is about you saying, uh, maybe this is the date this is going to happen, or, or maybe this is coming now. It's more, are you persevering? Are you enduring to the end? Are you watching yourself? I mean, Paul will write, watch your life and your doctrine, right? Are you watching your life? Are you watching how you're living? Are you watching how you're uh, walking in righteousness? Are you watching your doctrine, what you believe? I think Sunday showed us more than ever just the, the subtleties of what can happen when you're not watching those things. That's not enduring to the end. That's what Jesus is warning about here. He's warning to be on guard, to endure to the end. He's also warning against when things get difficult and things get hard, guess what our tendency will be to do? To look for saviors and to look for saviors other than the savior. We, we, we grab for false messiahs. I mean, that's, he'll even say, verse 22, false Christs and false prophets will arise. He actually said it earlier. Some will say, I am he. They'll lead many astray. Now, I think a lot of times we're not looking for a someone to come saying they're Jesus, the Son of God, but that doesn't mean we don't put our hope in earthly people, okay? I don't want to step on toes with this, but I think it's helpful to say I was very discouraged to be driving. I did some driving. Uh, we were coming back from, from Nashville over Christmas, and there was a, uh, or after Christmas, there was a sign. I hadn't seen this particular one, but it said it was a, a presidential sign, and it said, you, you'll know who it was, but I'll leave it ambiguous, save America again. Save America again. There's not going to be one earthly leader who's going to save America. Period. And if we're finding ourselves, things are getting hard, persecution's getting tougher, searching and grabbing for some of these messiahs or things we think will save, they won't. Now, that doesn't mean don't go vote. That doesn't mean any of those things, but it does mean who are you looking to provide ultimate salvation? Are you being on guard and are you looking to Christ? Because what next week's going to talk about is his return, right? So that's where our eyes are fixed. And in the here and now, what do we do? We be on guard. We watch how we're living. We watch how we're walking in righteousness. We watch what we're looking to to save us. I think that's what this part is about. So let me pray for us. I've gone over. 
and then uh, Pastor Jerry will come up and lead us. Father God, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for warnings, even when they're hard. Um, they point us to, to where we need to be focused. And Lord, we, we, we constantly need that. We, we need to be reminded of where our hope lies. And it's ultimately in Christ. And, and, and he will even go on to say later, his words are not going to pass away. What he says will come to pass, and we can trust that completely. So Lord, help us to look to Christ. Help us to fix our eyes on him. Help us to to, to uh, be on guard and watch our own lives in light of this. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.